Let's do this. Let's um, do um, faith to hope. Now, the the thing about 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 the the Christianity today is we teach a lot more about faith. We teach a lot more about miracles than we teach about hope and love. And I really don't blame the preachers because some of them don't even know what hope is, eh? uh, and therefore. Today uh, and since last week, I'm going to try and figure out for you what the configuration of your emotional space is supposed to be like. Um, For a lot of Christians, um, a lot of Christians hope and the state of their heart is what it is. You know, you wake up, you're feeling sad and that's it. You wake up, you're happy and that's it. And and we have no governance, no control over our emotions at all. Or so it would it would seem. Jaflet Kagwanja Karachi, pleasure. Sasanti San. So it is very critical that we understand the Bible does have a threshold for how our hearts should be. And um, we started um, last week when we were talking about faith being the substance of being things hoped for. And I defined for you that um, that statement there then means it is the setting up under, right? So it means to arrange your life under hope. And and, and that is is quite interesting because hope speaks of what is to come tomorrow. Um, uh, Let me just give you the definition of hope according to the Bible. And I'll take you all the way um, to Hebrews 11 again. Uh, you know this scripture very well. So Hebrews 11, verse 1, and and and, and it says of things hoped for, it is, um, you understand, um, that is to trust, to expect, or to confide. So therefore, faith is defined by setting and arranging your life based on what things you hope for. Uh, you do this all the time. So for example, when it is, end month and 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 you begin to tell your landlord i'll pay you on tuesday i will you you, you know you you tell yourself you'll shop on wednesday based on the hope that you will be paid and and that's what faith is so faith is not devoid of the expectation of good tomorrow so hope again is the expectation of god but uh that that expectation is ultimately the person of Jesus Christ. It it is the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope. And and we must understand this, that it is the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope. And the reason it gives us hope, and I'll read this this for you uh, quickly in the book of John. It says... um, Just let me read it for you. I don't have um, my usual Bible. Okay, this is taking a bit. What? Uh, Okay. So I have to restart this thing because Safaricom is doing a thing. Uh, So... Um, I'll, I'll read it for you just now, but in the book of John, it says that people were in chains because of fear of death. Now, let me explain what death means. Death there does not just mean physical death. It is the fear of losing things, whether you're 
afraid your marriage will die, your friendship will die, your job will die, aka you will get fired. All of those things that you fear are 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 the chains that hold you okay and to put you in perspective why the resurrection of christ is very very critical it is critical because you put your hope beyond the grave in other words that your hope is beyond getting fired a lot of you practice your faith based on oh god oh god please don't let me get fired please don't get let me get fired that's not faith faith is whether i am fired or not my jesus is resurrected in other words he's able to give you life even when life turns things around even when your so-called wishes are not answered i'm not saying prayers are not answered i'm distinguishing between wishes and prayers and it's very important critical in fact that you understand that wishes and prayers are very different things so a lot of you wish you will not get fired but prayers take you into another dimension that it does not matter uh whether you get fired or not you become like shadrach meshach and abednego where you say well god is able to rescue us from your hands O king but if then if he does not we will still not bow that's the journey that I want to take you on. during this series and just trying to set this up because it has let me down. Let me try and sort it out. Okay, so uh, Hebrews 2.15, that's what I want to read. Sorry, I thought it was in John. Uh, Hebrews 2.15, if you're with me, the book of Hebrews, not Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews 2.15. It says, And that he might free all those who through the haunting fear of death were held in slavery throughout their lives. So the fear of things dying in your life is the very definition of slavery. Being afraid as a preacher of your church closing down, being afraid of your business shutting down, being afraid of your lover letting you go, being afraid of being fired, being afraid of all those things dying is what has kept you captive because you must see because hope exists beyond the death of your business beyond the death of your marriage beyond the death of anything hope still exists and that hope is embodied in christ because he resurrected now this is important because he beat the ultimate death called death then every other death is subject to him I don't know if I'm making sense. Because Jesus beat death, every form of death is subject to him. So when he says he will resurrect you, he's not just talking about the resurrection of the corporeal form to breathe. It is the resurrection of every hope, every faith you've put in him, which is why Paul says, for I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded uh, that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Now, that day is not just judgment. That day is about everything in his life that was facing the haunting fear of death. Okay? 
because there's always a day of testing. Now, to get into this heart space, and we started this uh, in Romans chapter 5 um, last week, and I, uh, Oliver, please share the link to, to the group. Um, and 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 we started this last week, and I want to continue in the book of Romans. Uh, but before we go there, I, I want to remind you of a scripture that speaks about the state of growth um, for the Christians, and 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 let me just read this for you. Now, notice that it is very critical that you develop Christian energy, okay? So I want you to understand this. In fact, I'll just jump into this thing because eh? I'm seeing time is running. So let's go to the book of Romans, yeah? I want to go to the book of Romans chapter 5. Hey, Judy, I'm glad we are, we are getting somewhere. Now, I want you to understand, and I want to begin in Romans 5 verse 1 again, because people did not understand how they're justified. Now, everyone listening to me is a sinner. And, 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 and that is a fact that you must accept as a Christian. Now, the biggest problem we have is we were taught when we got saved that God will accept you the way you are. Then when you got saved, you started having conditions. You started being told about abusing grace. You started being told that you can't, can't continue sinning. And now there's this paradigm shift between you who continually sins Okay, and this standard you're supposed to hold. And that's where the friction of hope begins to change because this Christ who saved you unconditionally suddenly becomes conditional in your Christian experience. So he accepted you as a sinner, but now you are in his house and he's like, why are you not perfect? Now, I want you to understand that is a misteaching of the gospel. At no point, at no point, at no point, are your sins counted against you? In fact, Paul says, blessed is the man on whom God imputes righteousness and does not count his sins against him. So when you receive Christ, God does not at all. Hey, Lucas, Mambo, long time. I haven't seen you almost 20 years, bro. Nice to hear from you. So listen. It is important that we understand, as far as God is concerned, he does not count your sins. He never will. Now, because he does not count your sins, how then do you think he remembers that you sinned yesterday and now you have a pattern of sin? He can't because he says he will forget your sins, evidence one. 
right? And he says he will separate you from your sins. Number two, number two, and I want to give you another proof. Number two is Jesus, when he died, he died for Abraham, died for the thief at the cross, and died for you and me today, which means the death of Christ on the cross was for past, present, and future sins. Past, present, and future right? Because he died 2,000 years ago for sins we were yet to commit. Therefore, when he accepted you, Sister Simon, when he accepted you into the beloved, and he said he will never leave you nor forsake you, and he said if one of these sheep gets lost, I will go seek them, then you must understand that he does not get shocked by your sins. When he saved you, he knew you would sin. Now, whenever I teach this message, people say, oh my God, you're teaching people to sin. My friend, you don't need to be taught to sin. You do it all by yourself very well. But there is a thing called grace. Now, we understand grace as the forgiveness power of a sin. No, no, no. That's not all that grace does. According to Paul, he says, how can you who is dead to sin continue in sin? Now, you must understand death to sin. And Paul says we die daily. Jesus said you take up your cross and follow him. So you die daily. You die daily. So let me explain what that is. A lot of you, as you journey through life, different sins fall off. And let me explain what I mean by a sin falling off. Right? You could have been addicted to alcohol, for example. And what happened in your life is you're completely enslaved by alcohol and you had to, to drink to, to, to drunkardness, right? And then slowly, one day you wake up and you realize, oh my goodness, I can't drink more than I should. Now, what happens there? That is what is called death to sin. The appetite, the desire for that thing shut down. Now, even if you tried, you cannot do it anymore because even the taste of it becomes loathsome to you. That is called death to sin. Now, it is not a thing that you can do yourself. It is a thing that the Holy Spirit works in you right? Now, let me explain something. He does not do all of it in a day because what people do not understand is this, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon you, will not give you the entirety of the promise all at once because there is a principle behind entering the promised land. This principle is this. God said, I will not give you all the land all at once, lest the wild animals multiply against you. Now you need to understand. You need to understand. And and I don't know whether I have time, but let me try and explain. You need to understand that every sin in your life is a coping mechanism. Okay? When it says you are a slave, it is not a lie. You cannot help yourself. It is only Christ that can help you. Here's what I mean. If you look at someone who shoots up heroin or any other drug for that matter, if you suddenly take away the drug without treating first their dependencies, you will kill that person. So let me put it to you in perspective. If you want to stop a thief 
from stealing, they must first learn of God as their father and their provider. When they have another provider other than themselves, they will stop stealing. So it is not helpful to take them to jail. It is not helpful to beat them every day and tell them to stop stealing. It is very helpful to tell them that there is a higher provider. When they put their trust in God and they see God provide for them, then they begin to die, keyword, to the sin of stealing. So you can sit at home and tie yourselves to the bed so that you don't go out there and sin. It does not work. And therefore, you must understand in your head that until the day Christ comes, the work he began in you is not complete. It's never going to be complete. I don't care what, what, what any preacher told you. He is a sinner just like you. And therefore, because God knows you are a sinner, he loves you enough to accept you unconditionally. You must understand you are accepted unconditionally. You are accepted even when you deny Jesus three times. Oh, that's what Peter did three times. So Christ is not going to let you go. Right? And and in Romans chapter eight, he draws Paul draws a very interesting picture for us. He's he draws the picture of the heavenly courtroom. Okay? And he says we have an attorney. That attorney is called the Holy Spirit, and he intercedes for us with tongues that words cannot express, all right? Now, second, they supposed to be a prosecutor, a state prosecutor. That state prosecutor is called Jesus Christ, and Paul says, Jesus died for you, and on top of that, he is familiar with the experience of temptation. So he go, instead of prosecuting you, he goes to God and he says, I understand why this person sinned. And not only do I understand, I have already paid for the sentence. Do you understand what it means? When you exchange your life for Christ, it means that he has paid your price. So understand, there's only one penalty for sin. I don't know what other people taught you, but the wages of sin is death. There's no other one. Okay, so when Jesus died, he took your place. He died in your stead. So understand two things. He understands what you're going through. But two, he went ahead even before you sinned and paid the bond. He paid the jail term. He went to hell. He did all of those things on your behalf. So when you show up there and the accuser of the brethren, that's the complainant, the devil, he shows up. Jesus says, wait. This fine is paid, but also this crime was committed under extraneous circumstances called being human. But there's a judge, and that judge, that judge A, loves you. And B, he's the one who sent his son, gave his son, to make sure when you came before him, the price has already been paid. So let me ask, if the price has already been paid, what remains for the judge to judge you on? what remains but but you can choose yourself to walk into prison 
You can choose yourself to decide, you know what, I really don't believe my debts have been paid. I am going to go work so hard to pay my debts. You can decide. But as far as God is concerned, and hear me correctly, hey, James, James Nyingi, how are you? And please understand and hear me correctly, all right? If you choose to pay for your sins, then the wages of it is hellfire. Understand me correctly, because it says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not of the saved, of the world. So it is an option. Hell is absolutely optional. Hell is not a place you go to because you sinned. You go to it because you chose to. If you believe, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. And that is the first state of your heart you must have. I cannot tell you the number of Christians whose joy, whose hope for tomorrow is taken away because of sins. No, come on. I know you. Some of you have applied for a job today. And you're saying, until I get answers for this job, I will not sin. So that God owes you. <laughs> you're insane. That's not how God works. Because if God rewarded you because of your righteousness or sinlessness, then he's rewarding you according to the law. But the law leads to one place, damnation. So the first thing you must settle in your heart, and I know I'm repeating myself, but I need to get into today's message. Right? And, and understand this. I was sorry, I was reading a scripture from Simon here. You must understand clearly that God, as far as is concerned, in Christ you are justified. Right? And this is what is going to happen for the rest of your life. You will keep falling, He will keep fixing you, and one day you will wake up and that sin that bedevils you and people have, and you've hidden it from people and you're ashamed of it. Hi, Michael Mitch. You will wake up one day and what will you realize? It's gone. And if you've been a Christian for more than two days, you know it's the truth. Whether it's alcoholism, whether it is gluttony, whatever it is, just abide in God. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear fruit. <laughs> you understand? Now, ah, yeah, I, I love it. Jim uh, Kimachas has asked a question. Let me, and I love this scripture. I love this scripture. I, I want to show you because it's been mistaught so much. <laughs> yeah. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Now, this is in Philippians 2, verse 12. Now, I like to read scriptures. You know how I like to read them? Let's go there because this is, in fact, this is something that bugs um, yeah, uh, people. Now, listen. Philippians 2.12, I'm reading from the Amplified. It says, So then, my dear ones, just as you have always obeyed my instruction with enthusiasm, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. That is, cultivate, bring it to full effect. Actively pursue spiritual maturity with all inspired fear and trembling. Right? Now, I 
like what the Amplified says, using serious caution and critical self-evaluation to avoid anything that might offend God and discredit the name of Christ. For it, verse 13, verse 13, for it is not your strength, but it is God who is effectively at work in you, in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, let me explain that scripture in understanding. When it says work out with fear and trembling, it does not say fearing God will punish you. It is, in fact, the Amplified Classic says a bit better. Where is my um, tablet? Uh, it was charging somewhere. Agulia, copy charge. Please ask Agnes. Well, you come. Right? Uh, um, Hez, if you could just put up the Amplified Classic version there. Uh, now, understand this. The fear and trembling is this. It is with self-doubt, knowing I cannot do it. So it is not fearing God will punish you. It is fear and trembling. It is the fear and trembling that I cannot do it. And because you cannot do it, Paul qualifies his statement in verse 13. And he says, for it is him who causes you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Therefore, working out with fear and trembling, he's saying, I cannot do it. I'm trying to, I know I cannot, but you know what? God is the one who gives me the strength both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. I don't know whether this thing will come on. Eh? I hope it does. You know, I have to preach using like three gadgets nowadays. <laughs> Jolly. Right? Uh, thanks. Therefore, my dear ones, and you, as you've always obeyed me so now, not only in my absence, whatever, uh, work out, cultivate, carry out goal and fully complete your own salvation with reference and all and trembling. Self-distrust, keyword, don't trust yourself, which is why when it says anyone who says he has not seen, he lies. Because you should distrust yourself. You should consistently know, I am a sinner. I cannot do it. You understand? And and it says, it says, with tenderness of conscience, watchfulness against temptation, timidly, you understand? Not in your own strength, verse 13, it says, for it is God who is all the while effectually at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. So you must understand that scripture in context. It does not talk about you being some sort of Christian superhero. No, 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 no. And it does not talk about being scared of your father in heaven. No, no, no. It talks about self-doubt. So the fear and trembling is to constantly question yourself, knowing you are not righteous. And that's the, the difference. You see, a lot of people who follow the law, like Pharisees, have the confidence of, you know what? I am perfect. I am right. And that's where we get it wrong. Right? So the fear and trembling is the opposite. It's the timidity to know I am not right. I cannot do this. I am going to make mistakes. And therefore, who do you trust? So the fear leads you to God, whom you put your trust in to give you what? The power to overcome. Now, I want to show you a scripture in Jude. Right? A scripture in Jude. So this will blow your minds. But this is something that a lot of Christians need to settle. And I'm spending so much time here. Eh? 
But I think it's worth it. Let me read Jude one twenty four. Now to him, Jude one Jude twenty four. It's one. It's one. It's one chapter. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling into sin, and to present you unblemished in the presence of his glory with triumphant joy and unspeakable delight. Do you know God is capable of keeping you from sinning? You don't believe me? <laughs> there was a guy who took Sarah, Abraham's wife. All right? And when God came for, for him, he said, I've not even touched her. God said, I know. I am the one who kept you from sinning against me. Ah, ah. So it is not you who keeps yourself from sinning. It is God. It is God. The only reason you've not never taken drugs is God. The only reason you've never you done what is God. It is not you. And that's the mentality that must change. The mentality of the Pharisee is I am good. God owes me. The mentality of the righteous man is, oh my goodness, woe am I. I am a sinner. Listen, there's a story Jesus told. I don't have time to go read it. Go find it. And he says this, that there was a Pharisee who walked into uh, uh, the temple and there was a sinner who walked into the temple. And the Pharisee said, oh God, look how righteous I am. I tithe and I fast. I am not like this wicked man. And the wicked man said, oh, I am a sinner. Couldn't even lift his eyes towards heaven. And God says that, Jesus said that God looked to the sinner more than the Pharisee. That should tell you something. When he talks about fear and trembling, it is that consistent attitude of knowing I'm not worthy and the only worthiness I have is from God. There is this joy Christians feel for saying, oh, you know, I fasted for 14 days. Oh my God, I am so righteous. Oh, warning bells. You're not working out your salvation with fear and trembling. I hope I've addressed that issue because I need to move on. I need to move on. I need to move on, guys. We are in Romans chapter 5, aren't we? Right? Any questions? I hope I've answered your question well enough, um, Mr. Jim Kimachas. Um, if you have question, other, other questions, please, um, Nini, because this is the biggest issue that a lot of people have in addressing uh, Romans 5, in addressing uh, Christianity. This is the biggest problem, but it continues. So Romans 5 verse 1, it says, since we have been justified. So that's what I've spent the last 30 minutes explaining to you, justification. That is acquitted of sin, declared blameless before God by faith. That's what it means. You are declared blameless. Now you must believe this, right? Now you must grasp the fact that we have peace with God. So you must understand God is okay with you. It don't matter what you did yesterday, what you will do tomorrow. You are at peace with God. You are at peace with God. Because unlike we human beings, God has the ability to stop you from sinning. You know, have you ever thought that when people are about to steal something, you know God can just give you a heart attack and stop you? You understand? So you must understand you have peace with God. This is the psychological, the emotional status that you must have. And I know I'm repeating myself, but I have to obey. Uh, if you know me, I like moving on, but I'm repeating myself for your sake and for your conscience. So you must grasp the fact that you have peace with God. 
and the joy of reconciliation with him through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Now, if you want to understand this and the courtroom scenario I was talking about, go to Romans chapter 8. Now, through him you have access by faith into grace. All right? Now, you need to understand something. Grace transcends circumstance. Uh, how, how, do, how can I explain this? Grace works... <laughs> Listen, uh, I don't know whether I have enough English to express this, but let me try. Paul, when he prays to God to take away his thorn in the flesh, God tells him that my power, my grace is made perfect in weakness. So grace is very interesting. When you pray and God sends his grace, it is not necessarily the lifting of weakness. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> Lucas, I see you, bro. Listen, it is not the lifting of weakness. It is literally the ability God gives you to transcend your circumstance despite how the circumstance looks like. Let me tell you how grace works. Grace is when you are walking in the middle of a storm. Now, let me explain how much this boggles my mind and why Christ in that instance explains to you what grace is, all right? Now, a lot of the time, if any of us is looking at a storm on the sea, right? Alex, uh, Kalexas, I will get to your question right now. When you come and there's a storm in the sea, the typical Typical reaction is to say, please calm the storm, then I can navigate. Jesus is strange. The disciples are scared in the middle of a storm, in a boat. So they have a boat, so they have a flotation device. They have fishermen, so they're professional uh, 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 water people. But guess what? They are scared. Now, Jesus, who understands grace, God has given him the grace to walk on stormy seas, and therefore, the circumstance of the storm does not affect Jesus's ability to transport himself. And that's grace. Grace, and when God says his grace is sufficient, it does not mean the change of circumstance. It does not mean the stoppage of the storm sometimes. <laughs> wow, okay. Let me go there. Can I go there? Let me go there. A lot of the time when you pray for God to change things, you're actually praying for God to change you. I'll stop it there. We'll teach about answered prayer one day. But for now, I have to go. Now, let me answer Alex. Alexis. Now it says, lead us not into temptation. Okay, question, who are you praying to? God. And then you tell him, lead us not into temptation. That is a hint. Because we know that the Holy Spirit, when he came upon Jesus, the first place, the first statement, it says, and he led him into the wilderness to be what? Tempted. Hello? Okay, let me put it in perspective. David receives the anointing, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, he has to face Goliath. Uh, okay? So I'm just going to give you hints, because 
a lot more. But the second part of Leaders Not Into Temptation says this. It says, but deliver us from evil. For thine is your, the kingdom. Now you've got to go back and study that those words. They do not mean what you think. I don't have time. So please, Alex, please go read. Think about it. Next week I will start by answering that question. I don't have the time because I have to pursue something here. All right? Now, let's move forward. Right? Now, it says, right? So you have access to grace. That What is grace? Grace is the ability to perform what God has sent you to perform despite the circumstances. Okay, so grace is strange. Grace is sometimes you get fired from your job, but grace makes sure the landlord never calls you. In fact, there's a friend of ours. Let me explain to you, Grace. There's a friend of ours who was really down on cash, right? Really down on cash. And so he needed a break. And for how many months? Uh, Mugane will remind me how many months our, our brother didn't pay electricity. And it just didn't end. For months. You know, the units just stopped for months. And that's how grace works. You know, for someone else, it's someone empowering you the money to pay uh, the bill. Another person, it's being offered a house to stay in for free. Whatever it is, grace is made perfect in weakness when you have no idea what you're going to do. But God has given you access to grace. And what is access to grace? Grace is the thing that tells you no matter the circumstance you're in, you are going to overcome because it's not you fighting anymore. It is God fighting for you. That is grace. And I'm just doing a recap, and I don't know I've been doing a recap for 40 minutes. Uh, you will forgive me. And therefore it says, let us rejoice in our hope and the confident assurance of the glory of our great God. Now understand this. We have joy, not because things have happened, but we have joy because we have hope. We have hope beyond our current circumstances. So listen, your joy must be placed beyond the grave. Your joy must be placed beyond the place where, you know, oh man, the day ni kipata job. Kwanza kuna rafiki yangu hapa. Mazeni kipata do. We, 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 we. Mtaniona. No, no. Wrong direction. <laughs> Wrong. Because the joy that you have in your life is because you have hope in Christ. That's how you must set yourself up. You must set yourself up that your happiness is beyond what you can see. So you should be happy about your future. <laughs> in other words, every Christian should be a prophet. Stop living in the now. Mm -mm. Why? The big things. There are big things out there. So where do you live? Now, doctors have said this, that if an optimist falls sick and a pessimist falls sick, the pessimist takes longer to heal. That is obvious. You know that. It's scientific fact. But it's biblical fact that you must put your hope beyond now, beyond your circumstance, and that's where your joy comes from. Your joy comes in hope. And that hope must spring eternal even about your nation, even about your nation. <laughs> you know, 
people ask me, why are you always saying good things about Kenya? Oh, you've been paid. Oh, you've lost it. Oh, why are you not so angry? Let me ask you a question. You've been angry how many years? You and I, because I used to be angry too. It has achieved what? <laughs> Let me tell you something. A principle of life. Where there is hope, there is growth. So instead of waiting for things to happen, you should know they will happen because your Christ, your Christ is able to resurrect anything. That's how you must shape your life. Put your hope beyond the grave. It does not matter. In other words, let me put it to tell you why it, what it means. That beyond the grave, even if we die, our hope does not die with us. Because even in death, in that coffin, we still have a hope. It's, it's called the second coming. It will resurrect us. If I lose my job, I still have hope. There's a Christ who's able to resurrect my body. And by God, if he can resurrect my body, he can resurrect me a career. <laughs> There's no point being afraid. Those are chains. Waiting to be happy. Waiting to be fulfilled. No, 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 no. To be correctly set up is to know because you've received grace, you have hope, no matter the circumstance. That's the psychology of a Christian. Uh, now, let me take a detour. There's a song I like. And this song is a hymn. I say it's Rokove. Just cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Now, we know what a rock is, and we know Christ is a rock. But yesterday I had a conversation with God, and He asked me, Why rock of ages? Why ages? Why ages? Because there is something we don't understand about Christianity. When we say age to age, you're still the same. When we say in God there is no shadow of turning, then we must understand the analogy that says... rock of ages because the thing about a rock is it was around when David was fighting Goliath and it's probably still there now and therefore we must learn that when we are hidden in Christ, it does not matter what changes the world beholds for you. Because if you are under the rock, a rock that is higher than you, then you have nothing to fear because that rock will preserve your life. And by preserving your life, it means even in death, Christ will hide you in him. 
<laughs> and the problem we have is we do not have hope. Oh, we keep looking at the world. Oh my God, see what Sudi said. Oh my God, see what my boss said. Oh my God, see what the weather forecast is saying. Oh my God. No. There's a rock of ages. Rock of ages. And where is your hope found? You must learn to establish your hope, not on the newspapers, not on the media, not on what everything else is saying. Because let me tell you something, when you're about to get into your promised land, you will get 12 reports. 10 of them will be very accurate. And they'll tell you, oh my goodness, you have not seen how tall your enemies are. True. You have not seen how bad they can beat you. True. In fact, God said, seven tribes greater than you occupy the promised land. And I can tell you for free, I can tell you for free, that the enemies you face in your life are greater than you. But at the same time, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. <laughs> So when you talk about your country, when you talk about your marriage, when you talk about your life, when you talk about everything, you must understand that you can look at it in two perspectives. The perspective of Caleb and Joshua or the perspective of 10 other people whom you can't remember their names because why bother? So in your life every day, there is a report. There is a report. Now, there's the report of the Rock of Ages who took you from your village in Shinyalu and brought you here where you are. If you forget that lesson that he's been faithful in the past, then you face today with worry and you cower because you've forgotten you belong to the Rock of Ages. You totally forget it. And therefore, you read reports the same way our journalists write and you say you are a Christian, it cannot work because you're filled with fear and trepidation because of the giants you face. But, but in the whole of Israel was one young man, 17 at the time, who said, I remember the bear, I remember the lion, my God has been faithful, I don't need your armor, I don't need your methods. I'm not going to use the same methods. I'm not going to shout the same. I'm not going to speak the same. I must, <laughs> I must be different because that's how Joshua and Caleb did it. I must be different. And if God has given me a sling and a stone and grace, that's all I need. And guess what? If I need a sword, I must take the giant sword. At the heart of a Christian. See, the heart of Jesus was clear. He knew that even if the cross would kill him, it would only plant him in the ground. And when, when he resurrected, he knew that instead of just one Christ, Oh, now there were 144 in the upper room. Oh, my goodness. And how they brought the world down. 
this is our mentality, hope beyond the grave. That if you kill me, I will only grow. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you must, this is the mentality of a Christian. Right? And verse 3, verse 3, and, and if there's anything new I'm going to say, I don't know whether I'm going to get <laughs> to where I'm going. I'm now just in verse 3, and I hope you've understood the hope of the Rock of Ages. Verse 3, and not only this, but with joy, let us exalt in our sufferings and rejoice in our hardship, knowing. Now, listen, listen. I want to, you to do a psychological shift in your head. Before I even go to part two of that verse, psychological shift. Now, a lot of Christians, your entire prayer life is based on hardship. And what you do not understand, and if you're writing notes, I want you to underline this. Unless you can rejoice in your hardship, you're not getting out. Because you've not learned the lesson. Unless you can rejoice in your hardship, you're not getting out. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Wait, oh, okay, I thought I've disappeared because the internet glitched. Okay, let me explain to you something, and it's critical. You must understand that if God will not allow you to be tested beyond your strength, then if he's allowed the test, then it is passing it that will get you out. Now, passing a test is not the stoppage of the test. Niskize Vizuri, let me give you an example. There were 12 disciples in a boat, and Jesus told them, let's go on over to the other side. <laughs> and they said, okay, let's do that. And then there was a storm, and Jesus was asleep. And they woke him up, and you know the story, uh, and he calmed the sea. And they were like, oh my goodness, this guy can calm the sea. But as they were busy being astounded, what did Jesus tell them? Oh, ye of little faith, how long must I be with you? The stoppage of the storm before your heart changes is the wrong thing. Because guess what? Because they didn't pass that test, it happened again. And now God was clever. Jesus was not on the boat. <laughs> they had no one to call on. But until they understood that what? That they can walk on water. Until they understood that all they needed was to get the word into the boat, then the destination is instant. Ah. <laughs> okay. Let me explain to you. Let me give you the mystery and understand this word. When they were in the storm, all they needed to do was to understand this, that if they would obey the word, and Peter said, if it is you, then bid me come. And the word told him, come. And for as long as he obeyed the word and ignored the report of the ten because it says Peter saw the wind ah, ah. be careful when you can see wind wind is colorless 
Be careful when your life is guided by fears and rumors and stories. That's what it means. I'll give you an example of my country. What are we guided by? Oh my God, they stole too much. Oh my God, the economy is crashing. Oh my God, that, that's what you're led by. You keep watching the wind. It is okay. But if you stay your eyes on the word, in other words, if you remember what God said and hold on to it, you can walk on water. But the second part was this. As soon as they got Jesus into the boat, as long as they got the word into the boat, the Bible does not say the storm ended. They say It says they instantly reached shore. Telling you that the objective of the storm is not for the storm to end. The objective is for you to replace the storm with the word. <laughs> if you can have the word, you'll be just fine, my brother. <laughs> and therefore David understood this. He said this, he said, in the dry and weary land where there is no water, my soul is thirsting for you. Understand this then, that if you're in any kind of trouble, what you should seek is the word of God. You should not seek the end of your problems, which is your problem, because joy can only come when Christ comes. Now you, let me adjust your mentality a little bit, okay? The mentality of a Christian concerning the trials of his life should be the mentality of a championship boxer, okay? When a boxer is told you have qualified to fight the heavyweight champion, all right, he is happy. Now, I guarantee you that heavyweight boxer will be beaten a few punches by the champion. But he knows for a fact that the greatest honor he can receive is he knows his rank by who he is facing as an opponent. Uh -huh. So you know how much God trusts you by the level of trouble he's allowed you to handle. <laughs> Listen, there was a guy called Job who God set up. He tells the devil, have you met Job? The devil is like, yeah. He's like, isn't he a good guy? The devil is like, yeah, but because you're nice to him. And God says, okay, uh, go test him. <laughs> So stop binding the devil. He has a job to do. It's called testing you. <laughs> and the level of access given to him to test you is the level of growth you have in God. So how do you shift that mentality? When you face a problem, you must look at it and understand that God sat down and he said, you know what, you can beat this. You can beat this. And how do you beat it? It's simple. You must learn to find your word. What did God say? And when you find it, 
then you are standing on the rock. Then the rock has cleaved for you. Then you are hidden on a rock that is higher than you. And guess what? Like Jesus, you can sleep. That's how it works. Now, if you do not understand that, life will trouble you. Because what happens is you think you need a job, you pray for a job, you get a job, then it has a bad boss, then you go to deal with a bad boss, then after a bad boss, you need a promotion, then a promotion, then a baby. And then, ah! How you must learn is simple. That you must learn to look at your enemy and realize one thing. That if God has put you between the water, the desert, and Pharaoh, oh, that's the surest sign that Pharaoh is done for. No, hear me correctly. Ah, when it says he shall not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength, he did not mean these silly temptations you focus on. Oh, am I going to smoke or not? No, 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 no. He meant real life big issues, destiny issues, life and death issues. And when he allows you to catch a disease, when he allows you to be sick, when he allows you to face divorce, when he allows you to face unemployment, when he allows you to face rejection, oh, he checked you out. He checked your muscles and he was like, mm -hmm, this one can. And guess what? Guess what? <laughs> I need to teach you a principle of the kingdom. I don't know whether you can hear me, but I need to teach you a principle because I need you to understand the joy of trial. The master gives five talents, two talents and one talent. Now, the guys, we always focus to what happens with the, the one talent guy. Let me tell you what happens to the guys with five talent. It says, this person has had what? <laughs> Success with five talents. Then God says, mm -hmm, welcome, please go to the jacuzzi and, and, and there's a swimming pool, relax and chill. No, no. The master says, now give him responsibility over the city. Over 10 cities. Mm, what does that tell you? How God works is this way, and understand me clearly, is that after you finish one trial, he prepares you for the next one because then you have capacity. Because listen, God is not building people who run away from storms. God is building people who can look at the storm and say, I am more than a conqueror. What does that mean? That God made me face a bear, I beat it. He made me face a lion. I beat it. I'm now facing you, Goliath. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to face Philistines. I'm going to beat them. I'm going to face Syrians. I will beat them because the God of the bear and the lion and Goliath is still living in me. That's the mentality. You must have a warrior mentality. You must, you must have the mentality of the warriors of old who would look at death straight in the eye and say, I will die an honorable death. What did that mean? I will die on my terms. I will die standing up. I will die fighting. <laughs> the poem I like. The poem I like. I love this poem. 
like this poem. I love this poem. Let me read it. It's a poem by Dylan Thomas. And this is how you should live. This is how you should live. Now, listen carefully. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end, no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning they. Do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave, by crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, cast bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That's how you must live life. You must wake up every day knowing you're more than a conqueror. And guess what more than conquerors do? You must wake up knowing I'm going to beat this. That's how you go to wake up. It doesn't matter whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's an economic situation. You've got to wake up and say, you know what? I'm not going to take it. <laughs> doesn't matter how old you are. That is the joy. You know when you watch those Viking and barbarian movies and they are excited to go to war and they're like ah let's fight that's how you should be the christians of today oh my god i could get fired oh god oh god why do you have the power that created the universe in you to for you to be scared what does it mean when he says greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world listen You know, the Bible does not say that Caleb and Joshua had a different report. It is careful to say that they had a different spirit. And I've learned something. That when Caleb and Joshua went to the promised land, they saw the same giants, saw the same cities, saw the same armies. They saw the same thing. They saw the same thing, but their spirit was different. Now, my question to you is, how different is your spirit? You see, a couple of weeks ago, I said about the spirit of an age. Let me explain to you the spirit of an age. The spirit of an age is the wisdom where 10 out of 12 say things. That's the spirit of the age. But if you're going to overcome and inherit what these buggers are not going to inherit, because they will all die in the wilderness. Oh, yes, they will. The grumblers, the mumblers, the complainers, <laughs> all the people. Listen. <laughs> okay. 
Let me go there. If you go to the book of Numbers, from around chapter 13 there to chapter 20, you will hear mumbling and grumbling as one of the key issues they had. I want you to pause. I want you to pause and ask yourself, how much mumbling and grumbling do you have? How big of mumbler and grumbler are you? Because I can tell you for free, all of the mumblers and grumblers, they went round, never left the wilderness. They never left. But the ones who had a different spirit, the ones who had a different spirit, they got into the promised land. Now I want to ask you a question. Why do you think God has a problem with mumblers and grumblers? And why do you think the life of Kenyans and your life is not moving? Because you are excellent at mumbling and grumbling. But there is a God. There is a God that takes what seems impossible and puts the children of Israel circumcised outside Jericho, not a single soldier touches them, and decides that this city will fall because they walked around it. I've talked about this before, so I will not belabor it. So you have an option. You have an option. To look at the difficulties of your life, your community, your country, and your world, and mumble and grumble, or to look at the challenges of your life, your community, your country, and your world, and say, guess what? Oh, this is why my father sent me. This is why he sent me with some bread for my brothers. <laughs> this is why he sent me. So Goliath, oh, you've been ruling this place for a while, but you didn't know God was training me. And now I'm here to slay you. David did not sit down and say, oh, Saul, why are you not slaying? He didn't say, hey, Jonathan. <coughs> he didn't even blame his brothers. He said, you know what? This is why God brought me here. In other words, and I said this before, you are the answer to the prayers. That's who you are. That's who you are. So stop mumbling and grumbling. Roll up your sleeves. <laughs> and tell Goliath, I will slay you. That's the mentality of a Christian. That's the mentality. I will slay you. I'll find a way. If it's a sling and a stone, fine. If you'll be struck by lightning, fine. If I'll have to sword, remove my sword and slay you, fine. Either way, you is going down. Because guess what? God is on my side because I've been justified. I have access to grace because I believe in Christ. I have hope that beyond you there is life. So you can't kill me. Since you can't kill me, 
I'll kill you. <laughs>